Hey everybody, Future Hindsight is busy producing a new season on the social contract that will drop on October 21st. In the meantime, I wanted to share something special with you this week. It's a preview of a new Pushkin podcast called Some of My Best Friends Are... As in, I'm not a racist. Some of my best friends are... Dot, dot, dot. The show is hosted by Khalil Muhammad and Ben Austin, two best friends who grew up together on the south side of Chicago in the 80s. Khalil is black, Ben is white. They met a teenager's bagging groceries for $3.25 an hour. Now, Khalil is a Harvard historian and Ben is an award-winning journalist. They invite listeners into their conversations about the absurdities and intricacies of race in America, mixing anecdotes, entertaining storytelling, and thoughtful debate. Some of my best friends are helps listeners make sense of our deeply divided country. In the episode you're about to hear, Khalil and Ben tell each other for the first time about trips they each took to prisons abroad. Ben traveled to Finland and Norway. Khalil traveled to Germany. They ask, how did the Nazi occupation influence Germany's modern-day prison industrial complex? How is the prison guard and inmate dynamic in Norwegian facilities different from America? They dish on what made these trips so monumental and talk about whether America could ever replicate the models they observed. You can hear the entire episode and more by searching for Some of My Best Friends Are wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the sneak peek. Pushkin. I mean, I, I know that Finland and Norway exist. You know, like I see them like in, in the Olympics and stuff, like that they would have a hockey team or something or like right. skaters or like, you know, downhill skiers. But as places, it never even like entered my mind to go them, like as a place to desire to go. Like it just never yeah. even entered my thoughts. Like someday I wish I would go to Helsinki. Like that, I never said that <laughs> sentence or thought it in any way. And to fly, yeah. to fly through Iceland, you know, and land in Iceland and be like, Iceland? And then to go on to, to Helsinki, it just was, there was something for me amazing about it. But then I was with these other people who were like, Ben, I got to tell you, I got out of prison last year on a life sentence. Mm -hmm. And I thought I would never leave a cell, let alone leave the country. And wow. here I am in Helsinki. Like here yeah. I am traveling the world. Like that was, that was crazy powerful. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is some of my best friends are dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. Yep. And, and, and today we're talking about some deep divides and some inequality for real. Uh, for real, though. But, yeah. But, but there's hope, right? Because we're going to see what it looks like on the other side of change. Yeah, we're going to see what prisons look like in other countries. Yep, other countries, not ours. So many songs serve you so you might remember, man, that um, before you went on that trip, I called you up 
uh, because I'd gotten an email from Impact Justice. All right, all right, hold up. So Impact Justice works on criminal justice reforms there in the Bay Area, and they were organizing a trip to go see prisons in Europe. Yep, that's right. Like basically saying, you know, we're taking this trip uh, to Norway and we would love you to join the trip as a writer to help chronicle what we see. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I was very flattered by that. But I also was thinking, um, this isn't a good time for me. And to be frank, um, I can think of another person who would be better for this. I thought about you, not only because you are actually a professional journalist, but you were also working on this book on corrections. And uh, as your best friend, I thought to myself, this would be perfect for Ben to see something outside the, the United States. Uh, so yeah, I called yeah. you up. And yeah. you know, told you about it, and to my delight, you were in. Oh yeah, it didn't it didn't take much convincing. The moment you said it, I was ecstatic. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you've been waiting for this. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for recommending yeah. me. Yeah, I owe you're you. I owe you. Yeah. And I had to I had to wear like a name tag that said Khalil recommended me. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're acting all like my benefactor, but. <laughs> You went on one of these trips already. You went to Germany and saw prisons there, right? Just a couple of years before. Yeah, that's right. Back in, uh, in, in 2015, I went with the Vera Institute of Justice. We were there for several days and we landed in Berlin uh, and we spent some time there. But we also went to one of the northern states near the Baltic, actually. Um, and there we saw you know, a more rural um, place and their prisons. So uh, who was on the trip with you? Because one of the great things about my trip is that there were formerly incarcerated people. There were people who ran prisons and other uh, institutions in the United States. There were politicians who were working on criminal justice reform. There were academics. There were criminologists. There was such a group to learn from. Yeah, I would say ditto to all that. The exact same cast of characters. Yeah. No, no different. Just, just a, a lot of people with both lived experience in the system, uh, people who have studied the system, and people who run these systems. So you and I both took trips to to Western Europe to see prisons, and and the point of those trips was to to see how they operate there because essentially they operate so much better than in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we're at this opportunity point now in the United States where like. Um, we've maybe reached the peak with mass incarceration and we're going down some and there's an opportunity to push through further. And so maybe there are things to learn from that. And let, let's talk about what we, what we experienced there and, and what we might use back home. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And, and I'd love to do that, especially since uh, we know here in this country that the Biden administration is experiencing a lot of pressure to do a lot of progressive change. And one of the things, of course, that's driving that is policing. But before policing, we'd seen a decade of criminal justice movement and reform. Books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, published a decade ago, really helped to open up a national conversation. And so the United States is stuck in the dark ages of coming to terms with its racial past. Uh, it is still enacting forms of racial control in our politics that show up in our punishment policies. And so we have to make a choice to stop that. We have to rewire our cultural infrastructure that subsidizes this punitive culture. 
Yeah, the prison population in the United States since 1970 has exploded. It's, it's gone up over 700%. The prison population in 1970 was predominantly white. It was about 70% white and 30% black and brown. And that has reversed. And so this is, this is mass incarceration. This is what our country's prisons look like now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, late in the Obama administration, we saw the First Step Act being proposed. Later, it was passed during the Trump administration, gotten held up in the Senate. So, Khalil, hold up. Let's, let's tell people what is the First Step Act. The First Step Act did try to accomplish a couple things. One, it tried to shorten sentences by rolling back some of the harsher mandatory minimums that had been such a key part of driving up the population okay. in the first place. The second thing it did was try to improve conditions of confinement. And those two things combined ultimately meant that the federal system not only should be smaller— but should be more humane, a little bit more like what we've seen in other countries. So Trump took credit for it. And it was a first step, literally, in softening some of the hard edges of the incarceration experience. Something as as ludicrous, for example, is now banning the shackling of pregnant women in federal custody. So that was partly informed by people going to Europe and studying what they were doing. And of course, you and I got to see it firsthand, but I think this is a moment to put back in the conversation exactly what we saw. Because if we're gonna, if we're gonna really move the needle, I think as many people as possible need to know what real change looks like. Yeah, and I thought this would be a good place to talk about it on Some of My Best Friends Are on this podcast. <laughs> were some of your best friends on that trip? I wasn't there. Well, I felt like you were there. You're always with me. And we knew a lot of people in common. That's right. And I helped you get on that trip. I know you, you've mentioned that maybe seven times so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we pull up to this prison in Norway, a maximum security prison called Halden. And... It looks like a fucking prison. It is a prison. I mean, like in the fortress model, you know, Mm -hmm. giant concrete walls. There's nothing from the outside that says this is not a prison. You know, (laughs) crazy security, you know, double layers to get in. It was like getting into a prison, you know, that in my experiences here in the United States and in Illinois. Two feet Barbed wire everywhere. You know, all all kinds of guard towers, things like that. So then you get inside and that's where the differences are. It's like, Mm -hmm. it is a prison and it is separation from society. Like they're being punished and the punishment is that you lose your liberty and you're inside of this space. And so um, both Norway and Finland and maybe Germany, you could tell me if it's the same thing, that they have this idea of normality, which sort of is, you know, foundational to their belief of punishment, that that prison should be as much like the outside world as possible. It should be as normal as possible, that yeah. you lose your liberty, but not your citizenship, that that prison itself is not an additional punishment, meaning like the conditions inside are not so fucked up that that it's it's beyond the years that you're separated from society like it's it's actually a punishment in the United States not just to be separated from society but to live in this cell to be exposed to violence to terrible health care to terrible food to terrible conditions um and so 
you know, to make it as normal as possible. So you're not wearing yeah. prison clothes. You, yeah, yeah. you cook and have a kitchen. You cook for yourselves. Um, we went into these cells and the people who ran correctional facilities in the United States, they were losing their minds. They couldn't believe this cell. You know, so, <laughs> so one thing, it had a door that locked from the inside. <laughs> so meaning, <laughs> meaning the person who was being, you know, supposedly locked up, he was actually like, like any home you could, you could in, just sort of in control. You know, right. And it was like, entry and exit. it was just like, it was like just this little wooden door from, from the hardware store, like the cheapest wood door, meaning like you didn't need some hacksaw <laughs> to get out of there. It was like a college dorm room sized. It also had its own bathroom. None of mm-hmm. this was visible from the outside. And just the concept you know, to use the toilet with privacy. I mean, to think yeah. of the degradation that you, you know, in a prison in the United States, anyone walking by uh, can see you on the toilet anytime. You know, sometimes yeah. people put up sheets in their cells, but but the idea that you should always be visible from the outside. Um, right. And they had a window with a beautiful view and like curtains on the window. Um, curtains. People had their cur- own linens. Yeah. House plants. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I know you're describing yours, but I saw some of the same yeah. stuff. In, and in and I mean, the thing that really blew people's minds from the United States is they were seeing in every space things that could be turned into a weapon. Like their minds, right. even as people who had been in prison or who were running facilities, they were like, well, that metal frame and, and those <laughs> pins and those, you know, everything. And I was like, they could be turned. They were like, it's not even like they could be turned into a weapon. It's like nothing was bolted down. The metal chair yeah. itself was a weapon. Um, yeah. And so, dude, you know, dude, and dude, then you, 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 you missed that most obvious thing, like the, the silverware. When the I silverware. went into when I went into one of these same uh, cells in a max and literally in a maximum security prison, people had their own forks and knives. Knives like we yeah. can't even take plastic knives through TSA on an airplane in the United right. States. Right. Right. <laughs> but but in Germany or Norway, you can have a metal knife and fork to eat with like a human being. Yeah, yeah. They they had shared kitchens, so you know you're cooking as a group and. There were butcher knives that were on sort of like cords, you know, so mm-hmm. you can slice and everything. So, so you, you didn't can just kill the but- them in the kitchen, but you, not, you didn't not take the like butcher knife the back to you, <laughs> back to yourself. <laughs> um, so so when we sat down in the very first prison we sat down in in Finland, one of the first questions was, "Is there violence in the prison? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, do people who are imprisoned, you know, are they fighting? Are they attacking guards?" And and one of the guards there sort of almost laughingly said. You know, there were a couple like fights in the shower. You know, things mm-hmm. happened. Um, they were not only rare, they weren't suddenly an excuse to have, uh, you know, sort of extreme separation, punishment, dehumanization. And I imagine, I mean, if I were listening to this conversation, not having gone uh, to Finland, Norway, or Germany, I would be like, yeah, that's bullshit, right? <laughs> <laughs> but But the truth is that while... People can unlock themselves from their cells to socialize. They're still socializing within a limited cell block, right? So they can't get out of the cell block. Um, They still use solitary confinement. And the difference is not that it doesn't happen. The difference is that they have like a four-week maximum. The point is that the punishment is the least um, used tool inside of a prison, right? Right. Because the point yeah. of the incarceration experience itself is to 
is to help people return to a normal life on the outside. And yeah, so everything yeah. there has to be, you know, instead of antisocial, it's got to be pro-social. It's got to encourage people um, to find another language, another way of communicating their frustrations that don't lead to violence. You know, the other sense of normality is that the normalcy is the to prepare you to reduce all the harmful effects of prison. So prison mm-hmm. sucks. Like, it sucks in the United States, and it sucks in, in, in Germany and Finland and Norway. It's just it's a terrible thing. It's a bad experience to be, to be separated from the world, from society. And, and from um, your loved ones to a degree, right? And from your loved ones. Right. So, so everything is trying to get you to reduce the harm, those harmful effects so you can come back to society whole. And so mm-hmm. the more it's like the outside, the easier that transition back is. So one of the ways that it's also made normal is that um, you're, not, you're not put in a prison that's, you know, 200 miles away from your home. You know, in the United States, we have this model where, where people in cities and, and you know, largely uh, black and brown men are, are charged by district attorneys in, in cities and then they're sent into the state system and they're usually sent, you know, we, you know, in Chicago, we say downstate in New York, they say upstate, but yep. they mean, it means far away. And right. it's almost like an additional punishment to say, if your family wants to see you, we're going to make it as hard as possible. So not only that, I mean, can we pause on this for a moment? Because yeah. I think this is an important way to illustrate how different things are. So yes, I com- saw the same thing in Germany. Proximity was a big part of how people were never that far away um, from home. Uh, But in the United States, not only is it the case as you describe, where mothers and siblings and the children of the incarcerated not only have to sometimes travel hours to get to their loved ones who are incarcerated, and sometimes those hours trips are expensive, then they have to experience the indignity of being treated like like bad people who want to come see their loved ones by being subjected to searches, by being talked down to, by all of these incredibly heightened security measures. Being um, sent away. You know, women are often sent away. They can say arbitrarily, your clothes are too tight or you're revealing too much. Yeah, exactly. You just spent five hours. Your your underwear um, is showing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So so to your point that, that the experience itself is meant to make it feel like everybody's welcome. Like even, (laughs) even for us as, you know, you could say to a degree, your group and my group were special outside visitors, but all of us as skeptics on my trip, including the four state commissioners and two chief prosecutors. I mean, there were, there were plenty of people on this trip that were like, yeah, this is not going to be like, there was no way they could have coordinated a massive conspiracy of like all these people pretending like this is how things work. We saw people roaming halls randomly with with nothing but just, you know, like a meditative stare on their face. <laughs> it was like yeah. and and here we were walking amongst them. So like just to think about it, like we were not um, I think we we might have gone through some screening, maybe a metal detector in some instances, I can't remember. But it was definitely the case that, uh, and I had a camera. I mean, my camera could have been a weapon. Anybody could have come up to me, taken something from me. I could have given it to someone. It just wasn't, the whole mood was like, this is not about feeling like everyone is a violent murderer looking to kill somebody. 
That's so interesting because I went in as the journalist. I was allowed to bring in all my recording equipment. And when we went into Halden Prison, this maximum security prison, while the rest of the people on the trip sort of got the, the rundown of the place from the prison administrator, I was escorted into a room and sat down with two guys who were in prison there. And it was just so relaxed. One of the guys I spoke with was Frederick, who was this bear of a guy, a huge beard, uh, giant Nordic guy, but also very seemed very calm and peaceful. He was in there for murder. And we ended up having this long conversation about his experience. Yeah, it's a long, st- uh, long story, actually. But uh, yeah, it changed. Uh, some things has uh, changed to the better and some things has uh, changed to the worse. In Halden, every, every person who's in prison there works with the, one of the guards, one of the correctional officers. And every correctional officer... They're, they're called contact officers, has at least two people that they work with that they're basically like mentor and mentee. It's like, um, it's more like social work. They are supposed to guide you and help you with, like if you apply for, uh, before uh, before you can go on, you know, permissions and for, stuff for like that. And when you apply for different things, yeah, the contact officers help you with the writing if you need help with that. They help you with uh, if you have troubles with your clothes uh, and all stuff like that, uh, daily things that many struggle with in here. One officer that follows you so they know about your family situation. And are these contact officers, because I I don't remember this part of our experience. I can't say that they don't have them in Germany, but are the contact officers, do they present as guards, or do they have different uniforms? No, man, they... it is the guards. The, the contact officers <laughs> are the guards. They're as part of their job is yeah. that they're also like, you know, reminded me of when I was a teacher, and they were like, okay, you're a teacher, but you're also going to be an advisor to these eight students. And suddenly, mm-hmm. like in the entire school, I'm like, I'm always looking for those eight students, and I'm like, I'm responsible for them. Um, mm-hmm. I'm matched up with this guard, Lynn Andreasen. Uh, a slight woman, brown hair. She'd been working there mm. for nine years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I get to interview her uh, separately. It's important that uh, we can be open and direct, but uh, I have to be objective uh, about his case and who he is in daily life. Uh, and I need to tell him what he needs to do. And... She starts to tell me she had two years of training. Um, mm-hmm. I know that in, I, I heard that in Norway, something like 1,200 people apply every year for the job and they take about 175. And then they have to go through this rigorous process. Um, wow. She had a degree in social work and in environmental therapy. And she had worked at the prison for about nine years. I always say to my inmates that we're, we're a team. I want the same as you want. But, and the question is when you can get it and when you want it. And maybe not, we're not um, agreeing uh, on that. And so, so specific things that you would say that you need to do, is it specific classes or programs you have to take? Yeah, maybe I will tell them, okay, you need to take that class. Uh, even if, you, uh, I don't want to force them and we can't force them, but I, we need to motivate them. And do you get into sort of the, the root causes of the problems? Do people tell you about their childhood and their families? Yeah. yeah. 
sometimes I need to, especially when it's about drug problems. Why do you have a, a drug problem? This is also some of our education. We learn some tools and um, and methods that we use to uh, provoke feelings and uh, honesty. Wow. Wow. I mean, the, the line, first of all, that was awesome interview and uh yeah i just wanted you to hear my interview technique that's yeah 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 kudos (laughs) to me for recommending you (laughs) uh oh man that was incredible uh so the thing that that is so powerful in in that uh statement by lynn is we are a team yeah uh just so incredible and for her to say like all of us have one or two inmates that we work with and to as you said uh do you get into the background story like I mean, that's what individualized therapeutic intervention yeah. means, right? Like you are an individual. I see you. I hear you. I'm rooting for you. I don't want you to do anything you're not ready to do. But when you're ready, I'm here to support you. The way you describe it also makes me think, and I hadn't thought about this until now, that the loss of liberty, as you say, is the punishment. And we heard that a lot also but also that you've hit the bottom when you land there, right? Like, I hadn't really thought about that till now, but like we think about people who have addiction problems and the whole, the whole kind of science of, of addiction recovery is that you really can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. Right. And it's terribly tragic because... You know, the, the whole kind of science of it is that people have to hit, quote unquote, rock bottom in whatever way that means something to them. And then they turn their lives around. Then they can commit to therapy and, and you know, and, and rehabilitation or whatever term gets them out of their drug addiction. And in a way, I'm thinking about this just now for the first time. That's the analogy, not only because going to prison is that rock bottom moment, but then you get built up from there. Like you get actual individualized therapeutic treatment. Um, yeah. Half the people we talked to were literally trained psychologists because part of the And when you mean the people, the, the, like the, the COs, the guards, the correctional officers, the people who worked Well, the they prisons. weren't actually COs, but they were part of the staff. They were the prison staff. Um, they, you know, they weren't the guards. They were the social workers and psychologists who spent time literally working up individual treatment plans for every single person. Yeah. And so this so this think about like the investment in training, man hours, woman hours, like and then the notion that you can't treat people like they're some kind of widget on an assembly line of punishment that actually everybody has a particular story to tell about how they ended up, quote unquote, at rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I loved. I love about how you described it because it helped me to think about it as, yes, of course, you go to rehab. The point of rehab is not to make you feel like shit for all the terrible things you did while you were high, right? <laughs> the yeah. point is like, we need to help you see the beauty inside of you. We need to help you get reconnected to who you are in relation to these people who love you and want you to do better. So, to, <laughs> I was, you, for my experience, 
<laughs> All so, the beauty you can see inside. <laughs> so, teach them a sense of pride, of pride to make it easier. <laughs> Let the children's laughter. I mean, I mean, for me, Khalil, you know, I am working on these ideas daily. So I'm working mm -hmm. on this book and also a podcast about the parole system in the United States and about criminal justice reform and about people who are incarcerated. You know, the United States has a quarter of all the incarcerated people in the world. That's just nuts. Yeah. That just doesn't yeah. make any sense. And so how did we get here? And also, like, are there is there anything you know, in what we saw that we could actually use in the United States to get out of the, the, the condition that we're in, the condition of mass incarceration. Something happened to me, kind of more like on my way home from Germany, but, mm -hmm. but it helped me to really understand for the first time how much America's foundation in race and racism has mm -hmm. so fundamentally shaped all aspects of our society. And so I want to, yeah, so I, I, you know, so I want to tell you uh, this story about some things I saw and then that I experienced on my way home. I never told you. Uh, it's kind of su surprising because it was really kind of, um, it was shocking to me personally. I felt it very personally. Uh, and it helps to explain part of the answer to this question uh, about why the United States is so different uh, relative to these European nations. The whole point of the trip for us was to learn how do things work in Germany when it comes to prisons as compared to the United States. Like, that's why we went there. Right. <laughs> and what we learned is that the laws that govern punishment were directly written to account for the Holocaust, that they yeah. were written to make sure that that prisons themselves would never again be an instrument of genocide or any kind of state-sponsored racist project. So this wasn't just youth saying, I think of Germany, I think of the Holocaust, I'm going to see prisons, so I'm equating the two. No. The, two are, the two are linked there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the public culture of Germany acknowledges, uh, certainly since the 1970s and 80s, it, it, there was a generation where this wasn't the case, but the public culture of Germany, including a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in the middle of Berlin, the capital of the nation, is part of how Germans have taken this awful history and tried to make themselves a better nation. I yeah. mean, this... This powerful moment when, on our first day, we visit the, the Holocaust Memorial, which is really called the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. And it's this powerful memorial. It's right in the middle of Berlin. It is, uh, it, the physical landscape is represented by these blocks of granite 
that stand in various heights from uh, a couple of feet to eight feet. And you get lost in a maze. And this is a maze of murder, literally. Um, And out of nowhere, I look up, literally, and I see a toddler running through. Because what toddler wouldn't be captivated like being in a human maze? Because from from that small child's perspective, that's all it was. But it it struck me that starting at the age of incomprehension for the smallest child in Berlin, there is this inescapable relationship to that history. And that that lesson carries not just from the boldness which with Germans have had to face. Over time, they didn't get this right, right away, but they had to face what they did and then teach it to their children. But still, I kept thinking to myself like, here in this country, they've done the work. They've tried to uproot as best they can the psychology that makes it possible to destroy other people in the name of politics or of progress or of efficiency of something, of domination. And yet, when I'm on my ride home, I literally hear the conductor call out Berlin. And I realize I'm leaving this country. Like, I'm leaving this country, and I have to go back to my own country, and I have to think about what is possible in America, given the deep-rooted nature of, of racism as punishment, that, that this is a system built by design. And then, man, so I'm, <laughs> I can't even believe that this happened, because even telling you this for the first time, it's like, yeah. it's, like it's unbelievable. So I go home. I happened to fly home with three other people from the trip, all white folks. We make the flight home, nine hours. We land. Uh, we're all exhausted. It's first thing in the morning. We're approaching customs, and I get flagged. Hmm. And, you know, I, had, I was already traumatized by TSA because when 9-11 happened and they put all those rules in place, I was on the no-fly list for a long time. Because of your name. Khalil yeah, because because some black kid from the south side of Chicago whose family can't even trace his roots back to Africa because we've always been here since slavery times is now somehow not an American and suspect. So, and I don't fly internationally that often. Anyway, uh, you know, I, I come back and I'm annoyed, but I want to get home. So I say goodbye to my friends. TSA pulls me in for interviewing. And I get called to talk to the officer. And he says, why were you in Germany? And I say, visiting prisons. Why were you visiting prisons in Germany? Hmm. Because the Germans don't destroy people. You like said they it just do like that. In the United States. Well, that's obvious. They don't have black people. Come on. No. This is what this guy said to you? This is what this guy said to me. And that's it, right? Like, that is the question in front of us. I I, I don't even have the exact words Uh, to describe uh, what it felt like coming off of that trip, going in there with those questions, seeing what I saw, trying to, to map 
an understanding of the Holocaust onto the way they treat people, even foreigners, even people of color there, even people who, who have no trace of German ancestry get treated better than black people whose histories go back to 1619 in America. And yet, I'm not sure he was wrong. No, that's, that's what's fucked up. Did he say it with malice? Was he, was he just, was he? Or... No, no, he didn't. It was, it, was, it was just so obvious. And if you think about the obviousness of it, that is the thing that explains what has happened in this country. Yeah. That is the thing that explains why we have mass incarceration. It is the thing that explains why, even in this moment of the possibility for significant change, because a lot of people agree things need to change, I'm not sure how far down the road we're going to get. And And it's not black people's fault that we got here in the first place. And it's not going to ultimately be black people that change the system because white people are going to have to decide that they want to reckon with what they've done and they want to change. Yeah. Because the the other irony that I can't let go is that it was the Americans, it was white Americans who enshrined in the post-war German constitution the protections and the sanctity of life that ultimately you and I saw with our own eyes. And we saw the impact of that. We are the ones who led denazification efforts there as a kind of post-war occupying force and presence in Berlin and in Munich. And I've been to the museum that is uh, a museum dedicated to understanding the history of the Nazi party, where they tell the story of what then happened about American teachers coming to Germany to teach uh, the classics of Western history, to teach uh, the the authors that helped to shape America's liberal democracy. And yet, we can't teach ourselves what we did to Black people in this country. Yeah, And that, that to me, is the hardest lesson to take away from what I saw in Germany. Ugh, that, that's just so fucked up, man. Uh, you went to, you literally went to study prisons in another country and you come back and you're criminalized. It's, it's, uh, it would be ironic, uh, if it wasn't just so painful and real. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Uh, wish you were there though. <laughs> I, I, I would have been passed along. You know, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been flagged. I mean, that's just the truth. Like you were flagged. Yeah, yeah. But you would have put your arms around me and been like, you can't, yeah. he can't go by himself. I have to go with him. There's this sort of, you know, disease of American exceptionalism uh, to that we think we're, and this is almost what the the Germans and the Finnish and the, and the Norwegians were kind of poking fun at, you mm-hmm. know, because not only do they feel superior, they have the moral high ground, but they also know that that Americans believe somehow that they're the best, despite being the worst at many things or really bad at, right. you know, not only prisons, but at child mortality and poverty and inequality or at democracy these and days healthcare right? 
I mean, all, all these things. And so, you know, that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't use that instead of racism because it's, it's in the two are embedded, the two are interconnected that, mm-hmm. that you could think this, that we are exceptional. We are the greatest at the same time that all these things exist is both denying that system or denying racial oppression and also, uh, normalizing it and uh, embracing it a certain way, uh, whether it's openly or, or, you know, de facto, you know, that is, how do you, how do you get past that? Yeah. 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 And I think, I think for exactly that reason, uh, we are in a moment of a new administration, the Biden administration, and a lot of promises for racial equity and perhaps the greatest uh, systemic form of racism of the past 40 years has been the criminal justice system yeah, and the crisis of mass incarceration and all of the racial disparities of black and brown people bearing the burden of this punishment machine on purpose, a, a, a system built by design to do what it's been doing. And for me, that's why the 2015 trip I took to Germany is, has really been life-altering professionally and why it was so important for me, knowing you were working on your book, Correction, uh, that if I had a chance to get you there to see for yourself, that I could, you know, I could help make that happen. And I'm yeah. glad I did. Yeah, man, this is a lot, you know, it's a lot, a lot of, lot of really meaty, heavy stuff uh, to think about. And, uh, you know, we, we've been friends for a long time. So it's been incredible to experience so much from, like, being dumb and stupid and teenagers yeah. <laughs> to now literally traveling the world trying to figure out how to make a contribution to our own country. Yeah, yeah sometimes you have to, uh, to go far away to, to understand the things close up. Yeah, it's kind of like when you went to college and got some white buddies and left me behind no that's not what happened <laughs> no, no I'm, te- I'm teasing you uh you had some black buddies too all right so all right, I- so we'll, you know we we gotta keep at it right yep keep Until on next time keep, keep on, on keeping on keep on all moving right. love you all right love you too Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Cher Vincent and edited by Karen Shakurji. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. Our associate editor is Keishel Williams. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Leetal Molad and Mia LaBelle. Special thanks to Impact Justice and the Vera Institute of Justice, which sponsored our separate trips to prisons overseas. We couldn't have done this show without the work of these amazing organizations. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan Avery R. Young from his amazing album Tubman. You will definitely want to check out more of his music at his website, 
AveryRYoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Activate. Wonder Twin Powers. Activate. <laughs> I found this episode both thought-provoking and insightful. But what I appreciated the most was Khalil's candor about being harassed at the airport. Before I became an American citizen, I was no stranger to a similar kind of treatment, and it made me dread traveling internationally. I think it's important to share these experiences and perspectives and to remember... Just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening at all. You can hear more episodes at Some of My Best Friends Are at podcast.pushkin.fm slash future hindsight. Join us for a new season on The Social Contract on October 21st. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Mm-hmm.